all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, professor of medicine and pediatrics. And uh, as you probably can hear, I am dealing with a cold. So I and I know who gave it to me and I still love him. He's a nice patient, and um, I'm sure he didn't mean to do that. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, myths and disinformation about uh, colds and flu. And we, this year, the flu shot looks like it's basically no good, about 10% effective so far. And we are having both A and B strain uh, flu uh, that is just going through everybody. So the... Uh, the difference from the flu, by the way, give me a call, please, at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four or one eight seven seven MPB ring if you have questions because otherwise I will ramble on uh, about the flu and colds forever. The difference between the flu and the cold is, is the flu has a sudden onset within a day and sometimes even hours, where a cold is more graduate gradual. Uh, in its own set over a couple of days. The flu has fever, almost always fever, and it's usually over 100 degrees. It's real fever, Fahrenheit, so have a thermometer. And uh, you get little or no fever with a cold. Uh, You are sick with the flu. With a cold, you can still move. Uh, And uh, most colds do not make you take to bed like most flus do. And the symptoms are different. With a flu, you have chills, a dry cough, fever, headache, muscle aches, stuffy nose, sore throat, extreme fatigue, and weakness. Whereas with a cold, you have sore or scratchy throat, runny or stuffed up nose, sneezing, and finally a cough. So you usually don't get a lot of cough with the flu. If you do, that is a warning sign because... The big complication in the flu is a bacterial pneumonia. The flu's a virus, and uh, we do have an antiviral for the flu, but it doesn't work very very well either. So if you want to talk about Tammy flu, you want to talk about the flu, you want to talk about Zycam, you want to talk about honey, you want to talk about neti pots, whatever, give me a call at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Our lines are open, and we would like to hear from you. Let's go to Glenda in Hattiesburg. Hey, Glenda. Hey. Um, I'm having a gastrointestinal issue, and it, it's because it, it started out last January. I had the right ascending part of my colon uh, taken out, because, and there was cancer, but it was stage zero, so lucky me. Good. And they took out 19 lymph nodes, all clear, no chemotherapy. But ever since... I have not been able to have what I think of as a normal BM. Now, I've spoken with the surgeon and my GI doctor, mm-hmm. and both of them say, well, try this. So that was that chlorotrisamine uh-huh. that you mix in a, with water? Mm-hmm. No. Uh, then they said, well, psyllium. No. And now my primary care said maybe they could use L-E-U-S-I-N or B-E-N-T-Y-L. They're really for irritable bowel, but she told me to check with him. I'm having my colonoscopy next Monday. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it'll be annual from now on. So mm-hmm. anyway, I just wondered if you... So what is, an, uh, it, it, what is a again. normal bowel movement to you? Does that mean going to the bathroom every day or every other well, day? Or what, well, what yeah, are you trying well, to achieve? Every day, and it's also, you know, <clears throat> solid as opposed to, like, a liquid kind uh-huh. of thing. And I'll tell you, some at night, 
I can get up and go every two hours. Yeah. So yeah, so you do have an irritable colon component of that when they chop out uh, a large part of your colon and I don't I'm I'm sure they didn't take all of it out but they uh no, they right do take a significant amount then that changes uh, can change your bowel habits, and you have to adjust to that. Usually it's not so much a problem with constipation as it is with diarrhea because in the terminal part of the colon, most of the fluid is resorbed from the stool that has formed in your intestines, and that's why you have a formed stool. Uh, so more often than not, people who have that kind of surgery have problems with um, with diarrhea, uh, including nocturnal diarrhea, like you, you uh, nocturnal stooling, like you mentioned, um, there is one best solution uh, for constipation that I know of, and that is Miralax. And uh, there is no way that you cannot have uh, bowel movements regularly if you use it correctly. It is an osmotic laxative. Basically, what it does is. Uh, doesn't stimulate anything. You can use it forever. It is the same stuff in the prep that you get for your colonoscopy that gives you diarrhea because you drink a gallon of it at once. Uh, but nobody seems to either read the instructions or know what the instructions are. We doctors are the last ones to ever read instructions because, as you know, we know it all. So uh, the the way that I recommend that you use Miralax uh, or an equivalent, there's a generic because it's pretty expensive, uh, is to start with one cup, uh, one, one a bottle cap full and a glass of warm water, stir it up every night, and every three nights you go up by one cap full, full because it takes three days for the stuff to really kick in. This will not give you bloating and gas like uh, some of the psylliums will, which is a real big problem. It's embarrassing, especially when you're going to church. So um, I would I would try that, and I would go up to three caps in the morning and in, in the evening, and then if you're not getting any action, add another cap in the morning. You have to drink lots of fluids with that, and... Um, and I would recommend that you tell your uh, doctor uh, that uh, you're going to do this. Now, I do think you need to have the repeat colonoscopy in case you have a stricture, a, a tight place uh, in your, at your surgical site. So that can cause this, too. It's unusual, but they will stick that scope up to the what's called the anastomosis, where they join the gut back together and make sure there is not... Uh, a tight a stricture that is causing your problem. So that's that's where I would go, and I would uh, you know tell your gastroenterologist that that's what you plan to do if the colonoscopy is negative. And, and by the way, tell them before you get the the uh, the colonoscopy because you're not going to remember anything uh, uh, after the yeah. colonoscopy. And in fact, you should be very careful not to drive or talk to people oh, you don't like I know or anything. Because you say all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, you, my wife keeps a record of stuff that I've said after colonoscopy, and some of it is really quite embarrassing. So uh, you better be careful. All right? Just cl- well, no, wait, let me just clarify something. I do not have constipation. That oh, I thought you had constipation. What do you have? Diarrhea. Oh, okay. Well, that's a lot easier. Okay. So uh, after you have the colonoscopy, that's what I said is a more common problem. Usually a little bit of Pepto-Bismol will take care of that. And that's what we use first. Okay. So Pepto-Bismol is very, very safe. It's bismuth. It's very difficult to get intoxicated with it. And uh, uh, a mixture of that and Imodium which is safe. Oh, they have told me no emodium. Well, that's no, uh, no, that's no. Uh, not right. Yeah. That's not right if you do not have a stricture. That's why you're having the repeat thing. So I would uh, I would definitely discuss that again. We usually start with, uh, and that's what, what you're, you're afraid about with constipation after uh, having a bowel resection is that you have a stricture and you blow it out. Uh, by uh, increasing the amount of stool in the residual 
part of your colon. So that's a that's a, a thing we always tell people right after their surgery. But somebody who's a year out, they ought to have a relatively normal um, anastomosis connection there. All right. So if you want to know more, send me an email and I'll try to tell you some more. But you need to have a sit down, knock down. Uh, discussion with your doctors because you're you're having problems, and I would suggest starting with Pepto Bismol first. Remember that Pepto Bismol turns your stool black, and it will give you a surprise uh, if you don't know that. Okay, so thanks for your call. We'll take your call if you give us one at a one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. That's one eight seven seven MPB ring. Let's go to Pontotac. Pontotoc. Hey, Mike. Doctor, did I get that right? Pontotoc, uh, uh, Pontotoc County. Yeah, are there were there Pontotoc Indians there? Uh, yeah, I think it's supposedly a uh, Native American word for hanging grapes, but I'm not really sure about that. Uh, or do you have Indian mounds there? Uh, they are indeed. Just okay, right well, so you had great. Uh, great uh, numbers of them there because uh, you know Mississippi was had a huge uh, Native American uh, population and uh, those mounds are a treasure and they just put somebody in jail for digging in them uh-huh. recently and I hope they stay in the jail a long time because absolutely we have a are... great tradition and we have some wonderful people t- uh, today in our state that are Native American right uh, I have a question my, I just had my physical I had the blood test. And my uh, CBC mm-hmm. on the platelets, mm-hmm. it's uh, within limits. It's uh, uh, 208. Yep. And I've discussed all the, all the results from my different tests with my doctor. Mm-hmm. But I noticed looking back from last year, my platelets were 265. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering... Do platelet counts vary? Yes, they do. The platelet count is very much like the albumin and some of our other proteins. It goes up and down depending on how much inflammation is in the body. Right. And uh, the platelet count jumps up when you have a, a significant infection, sometimes even with a cold, and it will jump 20, 30 uh, count. Many people with rheumatoid arthritis have persistently elevated um, platelet counts over 300,000 until their disease is controlled. So it goes up and down, and as long as it's within those broad range of normal that you have there, uh, I would not to worry. My uh, brother just passed away with leukemia after 13 months, Mm. and uh, I'm you know, really sensitive, I guess. Absolutely. What kind did he have? Uh, CLL? I think AML. AML, that's a bad one. Right. Okay, so that's acute myelocytic leukemia. And uh, the, the genetics of that are such that you are at a slight increased risk. And if you have had multiple members of your family have that, that would be significant. If he is the first one, a close blood relative, that has had that, it's probably nothing for you to worry about. Right. And that is a disease of the, uh, of the white blood cells, the neutrophils, not the platelets. Right. And my uh, white blood and red blood were both uh, within limits and similar to a year ago. Celebrate that. You're right. Thanks for your call. Thank you, Doctor. All right. Bye bye. We're one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. I'm Doctor Rick. Uh we're taking all calls on all topics medically speaking. Uh and we will take your emails. We're going to go to Mobile in one second and then Perkinson. Got an email from Jim this morning. He said several weeks ago a man called about facial dermatitis and dandruff and you recommended a specific shampoo to use on the scalp and face to treat it. I did not catch the product. Please tell me again what the name is. We were talking about seborrheic, S-E-B-O-R-R-E-I-C as best I can spell it, dermatitis, which is a very common flaky dermatitis that involves the scalp, usually the eyebrows, and is associated with a greasy look on the forehead and around the nose uh, and upper face. 
very, very common. And the first step, do-it-yourself step, which usually is the only step necessary, is tea gel shampoo. Tea, like tea, tea, not T-E-A, tea, tea gel shampoo. And if you don't use it right, it doesn't work. The way to use it right is to uh, take a shower and uh, wet your hair and then squirt the stuff in your scalp and soap it in to your scalp and then rub some, close your eyes and rub it on your face and nose and so forth and then uh, don't wipe it don't don't wash it off then wash the rest of yourself and then the last thing you do is rinse that off that gives it a little bit more time to work and you do that every day until the problem goes away and then usually once or twice a week we'll take care of it it's nothing bad it is a nuisance and a lot of people have it and we sort of know what causes it but there's no easy way to fix it so that's the way to go on that. You're listening to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, professor of medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, taking your calls, and we're going to go to Mikey in Mobile. Hey, Mikey. Good morning. What's Thank happening? Um, okay, the barrier methods of stuff, because uh, we are in it, aren't we, as far as the holiday seasons? And in Mobile, that's expanded because we have Mardi Gras coming up afterwards, where uh-huh. we have... So um, this is a question that I have asked other people. Um, I'm looking at the label on the glove. It says 83% acrylic, 16% polyester, and 1% spandex. These are very inexpensive gloves that can be purchased in both adult and child sizes. Um, having been in a grocery store um, in the last couple of days um, with some beautiful and delightful children, um, uh, and and we all, I mean, you know, where do we get stuff from like colds and flu? And thank you so much. I'm going to be listening to the broadcast on your detailed um, how the cold comes on differently from the flu. I need to know that. Um, but my question is, back to the gloves, like I said, the very inexpensive ones you can find for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, does that, as a barrier method, does that help okay. as far as the transmission of the germs that, that promote this sort of stuff? Gotcha. Very good. So uh, gloves? Uh, whether they be latex, which we don't recommend people use, or acrylic, which are cheap and disposable. You can get them both in the grocery store and at the big box stores. The acrylic, they're sort of whitish, uh, plastic-feeling gloves, are are good barrier uh, things to use when you uh, are uh, cleaning uh, something that is dirty, uh, especially the toilet. Uh, or you're exposed to any materials like stool that transmit hepatitis and other uh, similar uh, infectious agents. So far as day-to-day use of gloves when you go to the grocery store around kids, uh, that's not much uh, use to that. In fact, you may notice that uh, uh, many of the uh, chains like Kroger is putting out hand sanitizer uh, at the door, and hand sanitizer is a big problem because what it does is it selects out the nasty bugs that it can't get rid of and lets them proliferate, and then we end up, rather than with the normal bugs that our body immune system is all set up to defend us from, you end up with uh, worse bugs. So we don't recommend... Uh, anything other than washing your hands with regular soap. We do not like uh, the antiseptic uh, hand washes. You may find this incredible, but that is the present recommendation. Uh, and uh, if you are around somebody like a me, like I, I have to wash my hands a jillion times a day, uh, <clears throat> I use regular soap and water where possible, <clears throat> even though we have antibacterial soap everywhere because... Uh, it's just as good, and it doesn't cause resistance. So your best way to uh, avoid getting a viral infection is to realize that when someone sneezes, there is a cloud of, uh, of liquid saliva that goes out about six feet in front of them, little micro particles. So if, you, if you're uh, concerned about getting infected, look at someone who looks sick, 
who is coughing or sneezing and don't get near them because that's where your infection risk comes from. Gloves are not going to really help you. Now, if you're working with, uh, uh, and by the way, we used to say you had to clean your chicken. Now we now we say that actually that's worse than just go ahead and put it in the oven. The present recommendation is don't even do it. Don't do anything other than rinse it off with water, if that, and stick it in the oven and let the oven sterilize it. So, uh, so we're getting away from all of these uh, antibiotics and anti-infectious agents that are causing all these very nasty bugs like methicillin-resistant uh, uh, staph and other ones to proliferate, and then our body can't handle them. So gloves, if you're handling stool or uh, changing diapers of some kid you don't know, if you're a mom... Uh, uh, you are living uh, in a home covered with a thin layer of feces because it is aerosoled. You don't need a glove to change your diaper if you're changing it on your own kid. If it's somebody else's kid, you may want to use gloves. But regardless, you need to wash your hands before and afterwards. And I'm sure that's upset many people, and we would love to have you call us if you want to talk about that. We're at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. That's one eight seven seven MPB ring, and we have open lines. Let's go to Jackson and Polly. Hey, what's going on? Hey, I was calling with a question about Tamiflu. Show. Sure. I have uh, four children. The old, the second child is fourteen, and he was confirmed to have the flu two days ago. Uh huh. Um, and so she said he was probably past the window of Tamiflu because he'd been sick for a few days. Right. So my question is in terms of prevention and, I guess, the current thinking on treatment, if the other kids should get sick, if Tamiflu is something I should pursue, or if it's really just the kind of thing you just have to kind of, you know, treat the flu symptoms and just get through it. Yeah, that's a really good question, and I appreciate you asking it. Um, Tamiflu is an antiviral. It works on some flu viruses, not all of them. And uh, the control studies where they treated and didn't treat people and compared how the way they did found that people tended to feel better a day earlier than uh, those who didn't take it if they took it during that window of the first 48 hours after developing symptoms. Now, you know when you get in the flu, usually, because it comes on all of a sudden, like we mentioned early, and uh-huh. it's associated with feeling like you're dead. I mean, it's awful. And uh, so so uh, uh, that that is a choice. I, I never gave my children, uh, thank the Lord, all of whom were healthy, Tamiflu, because I thought the risk of giving it to them so far as uh, allergic reactions and other things was was not worth the benefit. So mm-hmm. I don't think anybody ought to feel guilty about not giving their kids Tamiflu uh, if uh, if they don't don't think they need it. And it's not going to do much of anything uh, so far as the severity of the flu, although we hope it will, but it, it hasn't been shown to really make a lot of difference. Okay. How's that? Is that close to what you needed? Right. And that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, but wh- what do you think about prevention? They didn't, she didn't, the doctor didn't mention it in terms of taking preventative doses, and it's so expensive. I kind of, we've always been really healthy too, so I kind of just take my chances, is my thinking. Yeah. Um, for the rest of the family, but what's the current thinking? The current you know, thinking about- is that if you didn't get your flu shot, uh, and well, I still got people that don't want to get it, and this year it wasn't a bad choice because it doesn't work, but generally it does help some. And it has some positive effects over and above the fact that it doesn't hit the virus that you've got because this year we got A and B, and it may we haven't figured out which one it's not working on because it may work on one of these other ones. So I don't know what the final uh, the final information is going to be on that. So I still think it was a wise thing to do. But for people who did not get their flu shot and are at high risk for complications of the flu, these are people who are older debilitated on chemotherapy, on uh, immunoregulatory medicines for arthritis, stuff like that, uh, Embril, Humira, stuff like that. Those are the ones that we give it to. We don't give them to healthy kids because it's just, you know, they don't need it. And, and you don't want to keep them from getting it. 
if it's out there because it's going to turn their immune system on, if you isolate them from all of these infections that we normally get uh, and then they get them uh, in the future, they'll get whapped big time because they have no immune response. So the worst thing that we did was to, was to sterilize our children. There was a large study done in, in Europe a number of years ago uh, comparing uh, kids who lived uh, above animal stalls in Germany and those who did not. And the kids who lived among the animal stalls with all the poop and the other stuff in there that they were around and played in were much healthier, had fewer allergies, and other problems than the ones who were sterilized by living in the city. So there you go. Uh, it's not good to be. It's not bad to be dirty. There's probably a, a reason for uh, us uh, having exposure to those sorts of things, so far as our immune response and turning them on. So I hope that helps. Okay. Thank good you good so to so talk much. to you, and I hope I All helped right. a little bit. You're listening yeah, to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm here with Jay White, our producer, and we're at one eight seven seven six seven four. Uh, six four and uh, six seven two seven four six four, uh, and we're taking your emails at Southern Remedy MPB Online dot org. Let's go to your house if you give us a call. But first, let's go to Beaumont and Sue. Hey, Sue. Sue, you there? Uh, yes, sir. What's the pink stuff? Biz, uh, Pepto Bismol. All right, it's one of my favorite things. <laughs> well, I've got a bottle here, but I stopped taking it for any reason because it says on the label it's Bismol. Subsalicylate, yeah. And if you have a bleeding problem, you're not supposed to take it because I didn't know that it's aspirin. I mean, it's aspirin-based. And so, anyway, it says on the label, if you have a, any kind of a bleeding problem, don't take it. And it has big warning about rice syndrome. And so... First of all, adults don't adults don't get rice syndrome. That's for little bitty well, I, kids. I know, but and I, we, we're through with that one. Let's talk about the bleeding piece. Yeah. It is a salicylate. It's not the bismuth that is the bleeding thing. It is a salicylate, like aspirin, uh, but it is sodium salicylate. In this case, it's actually bismuth salicylate, which has much fewer effects on bleeding uh, than other uh, medications. Now, if you're on Warfarin, which is Coumadin for atrial fibrillation, you probably ought to give your doctor a call. But f- using that episodically for a viral gastroenteritis is usually not a problem. And uh, what I would do is let your doctor or nurse know that you're having an acute diarrheal illness, and they may prefer to have you use Imodium, uh, or uh, they may prefer to have you use Bismuth, I like uh, Pepto-Bismol much better than Imodium because if you have any nausea, the stuff tastes like gook. But if uh, you hold your nose and, and swallow it, and I like the liquid better than the pills, but there's no data to support that, uh, it has an absorbent function that actually absorbs bacterial uh, uh, toxins in your gut and can be very helpful in addition to sort of stabilizing uh, an irritable gut as it goes through. So follow the directions. It's okay to read uh, the warnings, but remember that most of the warnings on these drugs are to protect the, the pharmaceutical companies from plaintiff's attorneys who are always looking for an opportunity to sue somebody for an untoward effect. And if they don't put every possible problem that has ever been reported in the history of mankind uh, on our planet or Mars on the label, then they'll get picked off because they didn't inform somebody appropriately as a potential uh, side effect. So that's why that list gets longer and longer and why the pill bottles are so large. You notice how big the bottles are? There's nothing in them but a few pills, but they have to make them big to get all that stuff on there that the FDA... Uh, encourages them to put on there about the side effects. So that's that. And enjoy your emodium, but call your nurse first. Thank you. Let's go to Perkinson and JJ. Hey, JJ. Hey, ma'am. What's happening? Oh, brother, let me tell you. Um, let's see. Six years ago, I had a four-foot ladder break out from under me and pushed me into a wall in, in between a wall and a pile of sheetrock. Oh. Crushed. Let's see. Crushed one of my vertebrae and bulged out four of the discs. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so now I've been through four surgeries, infections, and everything else. I've been in pain management for six years. I take Hysingla, Opana, and uh, I, I mean other drugs, but for my pain, it's Hysingla, Opana, and... Uh, Oxycontin? No, no, no. It's um, Gabapentin. Okay. Now... <clears throat> These guys are under so much pressure to make sure that everybody's doing right. You got it. Well, let me tell you, I take my high single at 630 along with my Opana. Uh-huh. At noon, I take the Opana. Mm-hmm. In the evening, I take the Opana with the uh, gabapentin. Yep. That that keeps me at a perfect level of not hurting. Fantastic. Now, I haven't had it in... Two weeks. What? Yeah, I'm hurting bad. Mm-hmm. So here's the pressure these guys are under. Mm-hmm. Somebody in the lab screwed up. Mm-hmm. I went in and took my drug test. Mm-hmm. They said that there was absolutely nothing, nothing in the enzymes that showed that I was taking my medication. Mm-hmm. That's impossible. So now I'm no longer seeing that pain management doctor. I'm seeing no pain management, no pain management doctor. Mm-hmm. Because they don't do second drug tests. They do one, you fail it, you're done. Yeah. So let me let me let me explain a little bit to that and give you give you some kind of uh, direction that will hopefully be helpful. Number one, uh, the reason that those drug tests are being done. They're actually, and I know you know this, but our listeners don't, so that's why I'm trying to cover it here. The reason people on chronic opioids uh, have drug tests to see if they have opioids in their system is to make sure that they're actually using them rather than selling them on the street. That's called diversion. We have a lot of people who fake chronic pain and get the opioids and then sell them because you can make a lot of money that way. Obviously, that ain't you. You're in pain. All right, so we got that. Number two, uh, I have never heard of such a rigid policy. Have you talked to your pain management specialist about this personally? He no, he wouldn't. He won't. See, he won't see me. He won't get on the phone with me. Okay. Well, the the problem the problem now is is you've got to find a new pain medicine specialist, and I'm surprised that you haven't gone into withdrawal. Because cold turkeying that much narcotic uh, usually throws people into withdrawal status, and it's we we don't do that. Uh, even if we think somebody is selling it on the street, we try to taper it. Uh, if we say, you know, we say, look, you, you flunked your drug test twice, you don't have it. We think you're. Uh, uh, selling it or doing something else with it, giving it away, and sorry, but that's the rules, and we, we're going to give you enough to get you off of it and try to refer you to another person. Physicians are required if they have a relationship with a patient and want to break it to treat the patient until another physician can be identified, A, and B, refer them to someone else. I can't just fire a patient outright. I have some people I have, quote, fired because we just didn't make it together, and we tried, it didn't work, and I wasn't helping them, and they were driving me nuts. And so the way that works is I I tell them that, I send them a letter, and I give them an appropriate amount of time to find another doctor, and I help them find another doctor in the process. So so the the doctor has a duty to help you find another pain management specialist. Do you have a primary care doctor? Um, uh, doctor, yeah. Oh, a general doctor, a family medicine doctor, an internist. Well, well, yeah, but he doesn't work with workman's comp. No, that's if you have a family medicine doctor, then he has a list of pain medicine specialists, and you need to be referred to a new one. Uh, and ask for an acute appointment. When we send an appointment for someone with a pain management issue, what we do is we have boxes to check, one within 24 hours, one within 48 hours, and so forth. And he needs to check the 24-hour box and uh, and then get you get you into pain management. So that's sort of the standard way we do it, and that's the best I can do. But I want you to know that a lot of people are in your situation because 
the uh, all of the the oversight agencies have come down on the doctors everywhere, not just in Mississippi, because of this opioid epidemic that's already killed two hundred thousand Americans uh, with opioid overdoses, primarily with the long acting agents like like some of the ones you're on. And uh, OxyContin, of course, the one's most familiar, but it can happen with any of those, including, you know, five or six of them. So I hope that helped. And I wish I could do the oil Roberts and lay my hands on you and make you well. But I, that's that's the reality of the situation. You're listening to Southern Remedy at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. That's one eight seven seven mpb ring We're going to go to James and Clinton. Hey, James. Hey, how's it going? Doing better since you called. I was a little lonely here for a few minutes. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Hey, I have a question about an enlarged prostate. Yep. Um, is there any medication that will cure that problem? Yes. Okay. Well, Do you have I a pencil? Uh, well, I'm driving right now. Okay, well, you can go online. This this program is – Jay White puts this online after our program. You can go back and listen to it at our website. And anything that I said that you want to take to the law or remember, uh, it's, it's recorded there. I mean, I can't take okay. it back. So okay. there is – let me just give you a real quick uh, review about this. Uh, uh, enlarged prostate is an occupational hazard of being a male. And many, many males get this as they grow older. We don't know exactly why. It has something to do with testosterone and uh, other hormones. And what happens is the, the cells in the prostate proliferate, grow, and it gets bigger. And when, unfortunately, the the tube that carries urine from your bladder go to your penis goes through the prostate. Okay, and when it swell, when the prostate gets big, it squeezes that tube down, and you get symptoms like dribbling, uh, uh, running to the bathroom quickly, and losing your your water uh, if you don't, and so forth. Those are those are. LUTS symptoms, lower urinary tract symptoms in men. There, the way that we treat this is, number one, we give you uh, a medicine to relax the muscle in your ureter, which is that tube, and that's something like Flomax, which there's a whole bunch of them, but that's the one you've heard of. And if that doesn't work, we put you on detusteride, D-I-T-E-S-T-E-R-I-D-E. Dutesteride, D-U-T-I, I can't spell, D-U-T-I-R-I-S-T-E-R-I-D-E, Dutesteride. And uh, that is an anti-androgen, and it will, over time, shrink your prostate. You have to take it for six months to a year before you can tell any difference, but it can be quite effective. And you have to get that from your doctor uh, after you've had a digital rectal Exam and a PSA to make sure you don't have prostate cancer. So that's how to fix it. It's not a quick fix, but it's quite effective, uh, and I would highly recommend that to you. So I hope that helps. Uh, yeah. And let me know if you need a patient info sheet on that. Just send me an email at southernremedy.mpbonline.org, and I will send you more information than you want. How's that? That's right. That's good. I appreciate you. Thanks All right. For being there. My pleasure. All right. Where are we going next? Let's go to where? Tupelo? Ron. Let's go to Ron and Tupelo. Hey, we got open lines at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We want to take your call. And if you don't call in, we're going to go to break. And then I'm going to get frustrated. So please call us at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. I'm trying to break the record of calls per hour. And uh, I need your help. Uh, so what's going on in Tupelo, Ron? Well, Dr. Rick, a few moments ago you were talking about the Indians, and I have a quick story to tell you. I like stories. Um, oh, it's, it's, it's a good one. 200 <laughs> years ago when Mississippi became a state, approximately one-third of the land in Mississippi was still held by the Indians, huh. mostly, the, mostly the Chickasaw. Uh-huh. Of course, the federal government, in its infinite wisdom, could not allow that to continue, and they decided to have the Indian Relocation Program. Yeah, that's a good friend, Andrew Jackson, right? 
Yeah, well, he was part of it. Relocate a wild animal, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, up around Holly Springs, some of the Chickasaw had married into the Love L O V E family. Mm-hmm. Well, when they did the relocation, a lot of the Love family said, "Well, you're not sending them to Oklahoma without us." And the government said, "Oh yeah, we will." So much of the Love family went with their Chickasaw relatives out to Oklahoma. And kind of like Jed Clampett, they struck oil. <laughs> Good for nowadays, them. Nowadays, Dr. Rick, when you drive along the interstate and you see a Love's truck stop, uh-huh. that is that family. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. Well, that the, is. I always say there's no justice in this life, but there was some on that one, wasn't it? I mean, that, that is some karma. That is wonderful. And, uh, I I just uh, I, you and I are on the same tune about that. I think we have a lot of uh, guilt uh, as uh, settlers, immigrants like uh, I, I, both of us are. I'm sure, unless you're native Indian. Um, I'm Scott. That's close. Uh, and uh, so so you know about what happened to these people, and just think what our culture would be like today if they were still here in large numbers. Because they they have a a wonderful historical lifestyle, back to the earth type of stuff that we could learn a lot from. But it is what it is, and so I'm gonna stop now at the next loves I see, and uh, and stop my truck and fill up. So thanks for your call. You betcha. All right, bye bye. You're listening to Southern Remedy, and we're at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Wayne in Starkville. Uh oh, Wayne. I see rabies. Yeah, uh, it's kind of a strange story. We got a lot of them today. (laughs) I've heard. I got to say, I love your show. Thank you. I love it, too. I I can't wait to hear it every week. (laughs) Uh, This this one will probably go in your book, too. Okay. Uh, I'm working on a new house I bought. It's an old house. I'm remodeling it. Mm -hmm. And I got a picnic table out there, and sometimes I leave some food on it. Yeah, and there was an apple. My five-year-old son, I thought he had been chewing on it. Uh huh. And I was hungry. Yeah. So I I just uh, picked it up and and ate the rest of it. Uh huh. And uh, come to find out, it wasn't his teeth marks. They were small, <laughs> but I think it was probably an animal. Uh huh. And so I'm wondering how long can that rabies. A uh, virus live outside of uh, a warm body. Yeah. Well, the answer to that is it's unlikely that you have been infected. The most common way, uh, if you were going to uh, be exposed to rabies and not get it, uh, swallowing it would be the best way because as soon as it hits your stomach, the gastric hormones down there killed it off. I mean, gas, gastric acid down there killed it off. So I don't think that's going to be a problem. Rabies most commonly occurs with a bite, a bat bite or a rabid animal bite, and uh, it's the saliva that transmits it. So I I think it's highly unlikely that you got enough to be uh, problematic and the treatment, uh, the prophylaxis for that is worse uh, than and waiting to see if you have any symptoms. So I don't think. Uh, do you have rabies in your area? The the people in Starkville are all over that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's common around here, but I guess I don't need to run down to the Jackson VA and get vaccinated. Uh, I don't think they would do it, but it it wouldn't hurt to call and ask them. But I I wouldn't do it if you came to my clinic. I wouldn't do it and. Uh, so, but I think it's a good question to ask, and I'm I'm glad you did. Do you have you checked your attic in your house? No. Okay, you need to get up in your attic and make sure that there's not boogers up there, uh, squirrels or bats or other things. If you have endemic um, uh, rabies in your area, so that's if, a good idea because I have an open window up there. I've got to replace. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's how they get in there. And if you do, don't do it yourself. Call an exterminator, uh, pest control person to right. get those out of there because they use masks and all kinds of other stuff to get them out of there. And they also use federally approved chemicals to get rid of them where they, you won't poison yourself. If you go to one of these uh, stores and uh, chemical stores and buy stuff, you get all kinds of bad stuff. So stick with a licensed uh, person. 
Thanks for your call, Wayne, and happy holidays Thank and Merry you. Christmas to you. Valuable information. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Let's Dr. Rick, to, isn't, isn't bat waste like particularly toxic? I think yeah, I've bat seen waste stories is about not, that before. not good. Any kind of poop is not, not probably not the optimal right. thing to poop with. Okay, let's go to Columbus and Sharon. Hey, Sharon. Hey, how you doing? Well, we're right in line with your question, aren't we? We're just talking about poop. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, what's your what's your question? Um, like a lot of my um symptoms, like colds and stuff like that, I get a lot of my stuff from the health food store. Okay. And I heard this lady was talking about um how her bowels and stuff. And my bowels were moving in a couple of days, weeks or so. So I went to the health food store and I got that colding clinch. Uh huh. It's it's nasty, but it worked. Well, Miralax is a lot cheaper, and Senecot is a lot cheaper, and any of those uh, over-the-counter uh, things are, are cheaper than that stuff. It basically is just a laxative with some herbals in there to make you think it's going to do something, and I think it's a total ripoff. Some people swear by it. I guess when you do something to yourself, like induced diarrhea, uh, that can last several days, you, you got to think positively about it. But I don't recommend it. If you want to do something for your bowel, uh, the thing that you need to do is use a probiotic, uh, one of the kinds that is, and we're still learning about this. We don't know exactly how effective it is, but I have a lot of patients who swear by the good quality probiotics, the kind you have to keep in the refrigerator. And we try to get people to get them in, in yogurt, because we know that there's a, a significant live culture in there. If you get some of these pills that are on the counter, I'm not sure how much stuff is live. So we like uh, live culture yogurt, and uh, that can be very helpful because uh, a lot of this, the we have a whole colony of bacteria that live in our gut, so we don't even know the names of some of those organisms. And they are seem to be much more important than we knew in the past. Certainly, we know they help regulate the immune system. For instance, if somebody is allergic to penicillin and they have to, have to uh, take it, that we have no other choice, we feed them penicillin, and it desensitizes their allergy, and then we can use it. We do that all the time at UMC. So... Uh, it's important to uh, eat stuff because it turns your immune system down. And when kids stopped eating uh, a lot of nasty stuff, mud and stuff like that, 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 that I used to eat when I grew up, uh, you know, it, their immune system is whacked out. So uh, it, we, we're, we're getting a little bit too clean, but I know that's going to worry. By the way, people in Europe usually don't bathe every day. In fact, they don't, so many of them don't bathe every week. So, yeah. Uh, maybe we're not totally with it. Get rid of that stuff. Don't try it. Uh, let's go to Shirley in Biloxi. Hey, Shirley. Hello. Are you a psoriasis sufferer? Uh, not me, but my adult son has it on both hands. Pretty bad case. And he went to a doctor and he got a topical ointment. I forget the name of it. Uh-huh. They, said, they said apply it 14 days. And then go off of it for 14 days, and then apply it again if need be. And he's done that uh, twice, 14 days on, 14 off, 14 days on again. But his hands are still red and cracking in places. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says that he notices it's worse during the cold weather and after he has washed his hands. <laughs> so I'm wondering, do you have anything you would recommend other than... Uh, prescription ointment. Okay, that so that? so first of all, that doesn't sound like psoriasis. It sounds like a hand dermatitis. Uh, psoriasis can involve the hands, but it's unusual. Usually, it involves extensor surfaces of the elbows and the knees. It's behind the ears. Uh, it's this red, scaly rash. Does he have any of those places? No, he does. Okay, so he's got a hand dermatitis, which could be a contact dermatitis is something he is uh, using at work or something else, and he needs to go to a dermatologist. And was it a dermatologist that recommended that? Did I lose you, uh, Shirley? No, no, I, I, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Who, yes, who, it was. Okay, well, he needs to go back 
to the dermatologist because it ain't working and it may be necessary for him to have some scraping or other work done on that because if it didn't budge at all, I don't know which, there are three or four different uh, approaches to psoriasis, topical steroids, a calcineurin inhibitor, a whole bunch of different things that we use, and uh, and and that just doesn't make any sense that there was no response. So he's already paid the first visit, which is the most expensive one, and I would tell him to go back and let the dermatologist make a correction on the therapy because it's not working, and uh, and also get the dermatologist to write the diagnosis down where you can see if if he's really saying psoriasis. I bet he's not. I bet that it was a a miscalculation. But I but I don't know. But anyway, the real answer is sending back. Uh, <clears throat> the, it didn't work. There are things that do work, and he doesn't have one. How's that? Okay. Okay. One more quick question, please. Is that caused by a bacteria or a fungus or what? Psoriasis? Is that what you're asking about? Well, well, if he has dermatitis instead of psoriasis, what is Okay, let me help you with that. Let me help you with that. Let me help you with that. Dermatitis is a garbage can term for 1,550,000,000 different things, okay? So dermatitis is sort of like talking about paint. You got... Moore and Benjamin Moore and Walmart and all that kind, millions of paints. Well, that's what dermatitis is. It means your skin screwed up, okay? So that's, uh, psoriatic der- dermatitis is a dermatitis that occurs in people who have psoriasis, which is actually a systemic disease. It doesn't involve just the skin. It involves the joints and other places, the eyes, blah, 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 blah. And then there's contact dermatitis, which is an allergic dermatitis that you get from sticking your hands into something very potent, usually in the work environment, um, heavy metals, chemicals, and so forth, that cause an allergic reaction limited to your hands. And uh, so, and there are a jillion other kinds of dermatitis that this could be. So, no, some dermatitises are infectious. Most aren't. Most, we don't know what causes them. There are a few, uh, like acne, acne that kids have that are actually, we know a bacteria causes it, but most of them, we don't know what they are. So hopefully that is helpful, but, you know. It's helpful. Thank you very much. And if you want to know some, oh, well, you're mighty sweet. Thank you. If you want uh, some more information on that, Miss Shirley, just send me an email at Southern Remedy MPB Online, and I can send you a general uh, letter. Curtis is from Hattiesburg, wants to talk about diarrhea. Curtis, if you'll send me an email, I promise I will respond. And if not, we can talk about it next week because I'm not going anywhere. Uh, and by the way, love to have you back for next week and for our special Christmas edition of Southern Remedy. You've been listening to Southern Remedy, a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, supported by an unconditional grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Rick here with our producer, Jay White, and our call answerer, who is who? Who is that? Java. Java! Uh, Saying happy holidays. See you again next week. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.